For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. From Meat Eater's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. If you ever find yourself feeling lost, just remember that you're not as lost as five wild flamingos recently spotted in Wisconsin. Home of the uh, badgers, I believe. Badgers and flamingos don't typically overlap. The gangly pink birds were seen in Lake Michigan near the southern Wisconsin town of Port Washington. And biologists say this may be the farthest north the birds have ever been recorded. Let me jump back here, okay? Caribbean birds in Wisconsin near the town of Port Washington in a lake named Michigan. Copy? Great. Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources officials who spoke with local media say the Caribbean birds were likely disoriented by Hurricane Idalia in late August and pushed north to Florida. These five individuals kept flying until they arrived at Lake Michigan, which is a long way from Florida. Locals wasted no time capitalizing on the bizarre site. Crowds gathered to take photos, a local bar rolled out the pink Port Washington Flamingo cocktail, and a cupcake joint started selling pink Flamingo cupcakes. There's even talk of renaming the beach Flamingo Beach, very, very creative, and the access road Flamingo Drive. As for the fate of the birds themselves, biologists say they may not make it. Flamingos don't migrate thousands of miles like other birds, so it's unclear if they'll be able to figure out how to get home. The hope is that they'll fly south once the weather starts getting colder, but no one can say for sure. Thanks to listener Scott Coons for sending us that story. And listen not out of the realm of possibilities that, you know, this is how it starts. Huntable flamingo population. I imagine if they spend the winter in Lake Michigan, those legs are going to have some hair on them, though. There's another joke there, but we'll skip it. This week, we've got the end. Sinking reality, cognitive corvids, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was spent getting prepared for the kickoff of rifle seasons, as well as the pheasant opener here in Montana. 
picked up one of those new Weatherby 307s. Super cool. That being said, I did get a wild hair this weekend. Musky Chet and I headed out for a last-ditch spearfishing adventure. Chet packed up the walleye boat. I packed up the Black Series camper. All of a sudden, a heater is a very nice thing to have here in Montana. And I wish we could say uh, we were successful. The reason for the motivation behind using an incredibly valuable fall weekend for spearfishing instead of elk or deer hunting or grouse is that the water clarity in the fall here in Montana just gets better and better. Typically, what we found, though, was dirty water and cold, windy rain above it. I froze my tail off and dove while Chester locked into fish on the conventional tackle. By the time we wrapped that up, we had just enough time to fillet some fish and get that little lab out into the field. Chet and I had just talked about one of my frustrations with Snort, the fact that uh, once she determines there are no birds in the field, uh, she'll just kind of half-ass it, just kind of trot along. She's only three, you know, and uh, she just cruises. This could be seen as a smart dog way of conserving energy, but it can also be seen as a little lazy. She doesn't know for certain that there aren't birds there, but it's plain to see that she's confident in her decision. Anyway, that's the dog we got on the very first walk we did. Human hubris is definitely present here. The person wants the dog they are proud of to perform, work hard, heck, even show off when they're hunting with somebody new. On the second walk, when the sun was low and rosy gray in the sky, Chet and I's vests were barely on our shoulders as we left the truck, guns still broken open in our hands. That little dog was tearing it up, like a brand new dog. She ran 125 yards laterally for every five yards of forward progress. There was zero doubt as to the existence of birds in that strip of grass. The only question here was, when would we bump into them and would it be before we ran out of good shooting light? This particular evening was one where we had plenty of legal light, but not much actual shooting light. I'll be honest here, I was so wrapped up in watching that dog work, old Chet off to my side whistling and giving thumbs up in acknowledgement of that dog working so hard and fast, fast like she knew the clock was ticking, that uh, I missed the first bird. A sharp tail, snort jumped right at my feet. I missed it twice. Thank goodness for Musky Chet, who knocked the rust off his shotgun on the second bird who flew on its own after a big delay. It was a surprise bird, snapshot, great shot. A couple minutes later, on the edge of questionable light, I did manage to redeem myself, kind of. Your second barrel is nothing to be proud of, kids. We wrapped the weekend with walleye fillets, a sharp tail piece, and another good adventure in the books. <laughs> Moving on to the Apocalypse Desk. It's never a party at the Apocalypse Desk, but I have two reports today that are especially worrisome. The first comes from the journal Science Advances, where researchers recently published a study suggesting that humans have crossed six of nine planetary boundaries. Planetary boundaries, unfortunately, have nothing to do with space exploration. Instead, these are the boundaries the researchers say we shouldn't be crossing if we want to maintain life on Earth as we know it. Prior to the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, humans had a limited capacity to affect the entire Earth. 
but once we figured out how to burn fossil fuels and more efficiently produce food and other necessities, the Earth's human population exploded. We started throwing more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, eliminating more habitat, and producing more synthetic chemicals. This was great for lots of people, but not so great for the Earth and many non-human animals. A 2009 study first outlined nine planetary boundaries or constraints that keep the Earth's environment similar to what it was prior to the Industrial Revolution. These boundaries are biochemical flows, climate change, biosphere integrity, synthetic chemicals, deforestation, freshwater change, ocean acidification, atmospheric aerosol loading, and ozone depletion. This latest study says we're out of bounds on the first six of those planetary constraints. We've put too much phosphorus and nitrogen onto the landscape, and we've increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to well beyond what scientists say is safe. Those first two boundaries get all the attention, but this study points out that the other boundaries are equally important. Biosphere integrity includes genetic diversity, which the study says is declining at a far too rapid rate. We've also introduced far more synthetic chemicals than were present for most of human history. These include quote, forever chemicals, which we've covered several times on this podcast and can harm children and pregnant women. The study investigated what percentage of these chemicals have been tested for safety before being released, and found that in the European Union, for example, a little place I like to call the EU, 80% of human-made chemicals have been used without testing for more than a decade. Deforestation is another topic we cover frequently, and this study found that just 60% of once-forested land remains forested. They say 75% marks the edge of safety because of forest role in moderating our climate and keeping it human-friendly. The amount of fresh water on the landscape is less concerning, but it's still one of the boundaries this study says we've crossed. Some scientists are skeptical about the planetary boundaries model, and others argue that humans will adapt to a changing environment even if it's unlike anything we've seen before. But this is far from the only study warning us that humans may need to put more constraints on themselves if we want to keep the Earth healthy. That benefits the planets and animals we love, and it also benefits us. And let's be honest, we need all the help we can get. Another study, this one published in the journal Nature Geoscience, predicts that mammals have lived half of their time on Earth, and only have another 250 million years to call this planet home. That mass extinction, researchers say, will be driven by several factors. One of those is the reassembling of the planet's continents into a new supercontinent they're calling Pangaea Ultima. Pangaea Ultima will be uninhabitable by warm-blooded animals, largely because it will be too hot. The energy released by the sun increases by 1% every 110 million years, which will vaporize more water and create a greenhouse effect. Also, because the land heats up faster than the ocean, Pangaea Ultima will have large swaths of its interior that are too hot to sustain life. Volcanoes will throw more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and only the southern and northern peripheries of the supercontinent will be mild enough for mammals to survive. You might ask why we should care about something that won't happen for hundreds of millions of years, and that's, you know, I guess a fair question if, you know, you're not into working hard, which the New York Times posed to a planetary climate scientist named Eric Wolf. He pointed out that this research could one day help us spot life on other planets. As scientists begin using powerful space telescopes to peer at planets in other solar systems, they may be able to measure their continental arrangements to infer what kinds of life might survive there. After all, 
as Elon Musk might say, if Earth is headed for the apocalypse, we might as well start looking for another planet to call home. Moving on to the rescue desk. A group of anglers are lucky to be alive after their boat sank earlier this month, 17 miles off the coast of San Diego. Aaron Schwartzman and Braden Bowers told local media that they were out on the ocean with three other friends when the incident occurred. If those two names sound familiar, I would humbly suggest that you rethink how you spend your time. Schwartzman and Bowers were both contestants on the 20th season of the TV show The Bachelorette. Schwartzman was eliminated in week three, and Bowers, I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, quit in week four. And it sounds like they've found better ways to occupy themselves. Do tell, I'm sure you're saying. Schwartzman and his perfectly chiseled jaw told Fox 5 San Diego that he'd just bought the boat of his dreams, apparently not long after losing out on the woman of his dreams. One of his friends got his line caught on the engine propeller, and when they tried to lift the engine to untangle the line, that boat, like his chance at love, started sinking. The five men, however, did not panic. I assume they had some kind of flotation device, so the boat sank below the surface, they locked arms and started paddling. They didn't have much hope being 17 miles from shore, but after three and a half hours, someone found them. Chris Kieran told Fox 5 that he and his cousin were out looking for yellowfin tuna when they spotted something reflective in the water. They motored over to see if the object in the water was hiding any fish, but instead they found what Kieran described as a, quote, school of men. We don't consider ourselves heroes. We're doing whatever any other fisherman would consider doing, Kieran said, adding that the rescue mission turned out to be the best catch of the day. But man, wouldn't it have been better if there was just like a bunch of mahi-mahi swimming underneath these dudes? And I'd been like, uh, yeah, you guys keep paddling. Gonna pick up a couple of fish. It is unclear why the boat sank in the first place. None of the anglers were injured during the incident, including our bachelorette contestants. I guess it's true what they say. San Diego is a classy place. They named it San Diego. Which, of course, in German means a whale's... Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure my stuff is taken care of even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash cal policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. 
because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Moving on to the legal desk. Georgians have an opportunity to gain access to more streams and rivers in the wake of a bill passed this year by the state legislature. Senate Bill 115 clarified that the state owns all navigable stream beds, which are therefore open to fishing, hunting, passage, navigation, commerce, and transportation. That might sound cut and dried, but regular listeners know that river access issues are never simple. First of all, The landowners who are at the heart of this controversy say that the new law doesn't apply to them. A group of landowners along the Flint River in western Georgia tried to block public access to their portions of the river. Ugh, I just... Is it your river? Is it? And for how long? Give me the average age of these people, please. These folks believed they had a legal right above everyone else on the planet, and they sued the Georgia Department of Natural Resources because they said the DNR failed to enforce their exclusive rights. A court ruled that people can float the river, but they aren't allowed to fish without landowner permission. Even though the court made its ruling prior to the new law being passed, the landowners say that the court gave them permission to prohibit public fishing on a public river. I'm I'm pausing for effect there. To complicate things even further, it's still not clear which streams and rivers count as, quote, navigable. The public has access to any navigable river, but the state defines this term as, quote, a stream which is capable of transporting boats loaded with freight in the regular course of trade, either for the whole or part of the year. It clarifies that transporting wood in small boats doesn't make a river navigable, but it does not say, for example, how much of the year a stream would have to flow for it to meet this definition. Very interesting to me because as the history of water rights and that crazy word navigable goes, commerce, friends and neighbors, if you did not know, started in this country with folks loading up dugout canoes, very small craft, and floating them down very small rivers laden with hides. And we're talking squirrel hides, mink, rabbit, deer, beaver, otter, Some of this stuff is just not that big, but it is commerce and they are navigating a river. And just to go back to that, listen, it's commerce and it's navigating a river. And if you want to put a quantity of whatever good you're talking about 
attached to that, you should go down and talk to your local shop owner. Go to a fly shop, for instance, right? And get into the weeds on what type of quantities they're dealing with on down days. And then you tell them whether or not you think that they are uh, participating in commerce. See how that goes. Anyway, under this statute, the landowner's exclusive rights to the stream bed extend to the low water mark. If a stream is dry during the hot summer months, does that mean that the landowner has rights to the stream for the entire year? Some folks would say yes. Here's how the lawyers for the landowners I just mentioned put it. Quote, the fact that some of the private property happens to be underwater does not negate the fact it is private property. And because it is private property, one has no more right to stomp around the river property and take fish than one has to set up a deer stand in a farmer's pecan orchard or cast a net into a neighbor's koi pond. I said pecan there because some areas, I think George is a pecan state instead of a pecan state. Uh, right in, A-S-K-C-A-L, at TheMeatEater.com. The good news is that the Georgia General Assembly has convened a committee to study this issue, which gives the public a chance to weigh in. The House Study Committee on Fishing Access to Freshwater Resources will be holding four meetings throughout the state in the coming months. They're tasked with recommending legislation that will resolve some of these issues, which may include a clearer definition of navigable, a map showing which streams the public can and can't access, and how much latitude to prohibit fishing landowners actually have. If you care about stream access in Georgia, now is the time to get involved. These committee members need to hear from you, and I'd also encourage you to find and attend one of these meetings. We'll post a link at themeateater.com forward slash cal to a list of the committee members. Big thanks to listener Duncan Connolly for bringing this issue to our attention. Moving on to the Corvid desk. A new study published in the journal Current Biology has confirmed for the first time that crows are capable of using statistical logic when making decisions. Scientists and everyday bird watchers have known for centuries that crows and ravens are smart. Corvids, as they're collectively known, have a large brain for their size and a particularly pronounced forebrain, which is associated with statistical and analytical reasoning. Crows have been shown to recognize human faces, speak to each other, and even use twigs as tools to extract bugs from tree bark. In one experiment, crows were trained to recognize the difference between heavy and light objects by observing which ones blew in front of a fan. This ability to infer weight without actually handling the object is a skill only associated with humans, and not usually until those humans are seven years old. You can find videos of this experiment on YouTube, and it's pretty darned impressive. Anyway, in this latest experiment, scientists wanted to know if crows could use statistical logic to make good decisions. Statistical logic is a fancy term used to describe something you do every day. If you're thinking about where to look for mule deer, for example, you use statistical logic to predict where the deer might be congregating at different times of year. If you saw lots of deer last September in Valley A, but not as many in Valley B, You use statistical logic to predict that Valley A will be a good decision this year as well. To test this ability in crows, researchers set up a touchscreen displaying images and taught the crows that pecking at those images gave them treats. Once the crows grasped this concept, they began to introduce statistical logic. The images didn't yield a treat every time, but some images yielded treats more often than others. They found that once the crows had experience with the various images, they were able to choose the image with the highest probability of reward every time. 
Then, just to confirm that their findings weren't dumb luck, they waited a month and gave the crows the same task. Just as before, the crows remembered the reward probabilities and could pick the highest one. Pretty cool stuff. I've often wondered whether crows are warning other animals about a human in the forest. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if they are. If deer could ever learn to speak crow, I think we'd all be in trouble. I do want to let everybody know, this is a late season hunting tactic. Crows definitely tip hunters off as to where the elk are. Big herds of cows often have crows and ravens circling above them, so you got to pay attention to that. They like the uh, rewards left over from hunters, be they uh, bipedal or uh, fanged, wolfed kind of hunters, you know what I'm talking about there? Anyway, moving on to the crime desk. Four people are facing charges in Ontario for violating the province's fishery regulations in connection with a recent tournament on Lake Nipissing. Now I know what you're thinking. More anglers got caught stuffing weights into their fish. This story is actually a little different. The tournament had a rule that three of the five northern pike anglers catch had to have an overall length of less than 61 centimeters. These two teams of anglers allegedly trimmed the tails off their fish to meet that 61 centimeter max. They're denying the allegations, according to a press release from the tournament, and they seem to be claiming that the fish had their tails cut at some point in the past. The winners of the tournament were not involved in this incident, but the two teams accused of cheating did qualify for some prize money. Tournament officials say they won't be paying out that money until the matter is resolved. The four anglers face charges of failing to keep fish in a manner that allows size to be easily measured, which comes with a $100 fine. Thanks to Dan Bro for sending in a truly unique fishing story. I mean, whoever thought a fisherman want their fish to be smaller than they actually are. Next up at the crime desk, and see if you can keep up with this one. A turtle trafficking suspect in Ohio was indicated last month for striking a wildlife officer with his vehicle. Wildlife officials received a tip that two men were selling red-eared slider turtles in Cincinnati, and they went to investigate. Sure enough, they found the men slinging turtles without the proper permits, and they tried to arrest them. But 37-year-old Alonzo Oliver Tucker wasn't about to go down without a fight. He allegedly failed to obey one of the officer's commands and fled in his vehicle, striking the officer as he accelerated. Oliver Tucker was on the lam for a few days until he was eventually arrested in Pennsylvania. The officer only sustained minor injuries, but Oliver Tucker is likely headed to the clink. He was indicted on a felony count of assaulting a police officer and another felony count of failure to comply with an order of a police officer. It is legal for Ohio residents to sell offspring of wild-caught red-eared slider turtles as long as they obtain a $40 permit and don't possess more than four turtles. But according to the DNR, Oliver Tucker lives in Philadelphia, he didn't purchase a propagation permit, and had over 100 turtles in his possession. As with all cases of commercial wildlife crime, it takes two to tango. If you're wanting to buy any kind of animal as a pet, be sure you purchase from a reputable dealer, not uh, some guy selling turtles on the street. Speaking of commercial wildlife crimes, a Malaysian wildlife trafficker known as the Godfather was sentenced to 18 months in prison for a scheme to sell at least $2.1 million in poached rhinoceros horns. 58-year-old Teo Boon Ching was the middleman in the operation, he arranged to ship 483 pounds of rhino horns he received from co-conspirators in Africa to buyers around the world. 
A forensic study by a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service laboratory revealed that Ching was selling horns from both black rhinos, which are listed as critically endangered, as well as white rhinos, which are near-threatened. He was extradited from Thailand to the United States because some of his buyers were in Manhattan. Without that rhino horn going into Manhattan, you could say uh, there's going to be some people uh, hard up. But that wouldn't be right because that's not what uh, rhino horn is, you know, supposed to do uh, for... Anyway, look it up. 60% of the time, it works every time. Idaho game wardens are thanking members of the public for sending in a tip about a headless buck discovered last year near Egan. The tip led to a larger investigation, and officers eventually confirmed that Brad Nicholas Hill had shot a mature antlered mule deer at night with a 22 caliber long rifle during closed season. Hill was charged with a felony as well as additional fishing game misdemeanors. He pled guilty to two misdemeanors and was sentenced last month. He'll spend 30 days in jail, be on probation for two years, pay over $3,000 in fines, and have his hunting license suspended for life. That's all I got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's AskCal, at TheMeatEater.com, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. On top of that, go to www.steeldealers.com, find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20% off your first order.